you should surround yourself with people that you are writing for so you know you're actually giving them something that they'll actually give a shit about you. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Pilot G205, a.k.a. Rabba Can't Lose, a.k.a. No Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Alex Lieberman of MorningBrew.com. He created a daily newsletter that is basically Wall Street Journal for millennials. So what's crazy about this is that Alex has built this newsletter to an eight-figure business and over a million subscribers in record time. So you know your boy wanted to steal his secrets and share them with you. In this conversation, you're going to enjoy three major things. Number one, a step-by-step on how the hell can you get your first thousand subscribers, quick feedback loops, guerrilla tactics for user acquisition, and more things about advertising and growing an email list. Number two, dealing with anxiety. Yeah, we talked about some real, real talk, challenges growing a company, and steps you can take to keep performing at your best. And number three, how to keep scaling your business model and removing all bottlenecks. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more surprises along the way. Product plug! Before we jump into the conversation, go check out sumoride.com. It's a charity ride we've been putting together where we have a party, we ride bikes, and we contribute to a fun cause. All the money, 100%, goes to laptops for kids so that they can have the same opportunity you and me have. Last year, we raised nearly 15,000 buckaroos and donated over 200 laptops. It's not a hardcore ride. You don't have to wear the spandex, but we will have tacos, frozen margaritas, Lance Armstrong's race organizers helping, and we're going to have a blast down here in Austin, Texas on September 13th and 14th. There's only about 50 spots available, and if you can't make it, you can still donate it. Check it out, sumoride.com. Special pre-show shout-out listener to the self-made businessman of USA. He left a review and said, I like that Noah just does the podcast the way he thinks it should be done. And I don't do these shout-outs to hear my own compliments. I want to showcase you sexy bastards. Yes, you. So leave a review on iTunes, and I will feature one of you sexy bastards in an upcoming episode. This is number one Jew, Alex Lieberman. Alex Juberman from Livingstein, New Jersey. A lot of times, I don't know if you're noticing this, when you started Morning Brew, you're like, yo, this is fucking dope. Yeah. And like you did all this crazy shit because you had nothing to lose. Yeah. And then that got you to this place. You're like, all right, we have to be a little more less risky. People lose their way and you lose like your core. Yeah. Like it's always a constant battle of, especially when you have a lean team, it's like our biggest concern is about diluting ourselves. But it's like this balance of if we do the same exact thing year after year after year, at some point we become less interesting to people or to our readers. So the question is like, how can we continue to create things that add value for them, but also not spread ourselves too thin? One thing with that though, I wonder too, is that it's longitudinal. It takes time because they might start not caring about you now, but you don't really even realize it. Oh, 100%. Like I'd be interested to know like how we can actually measure that other than just like anecdotally be talking to a lot of people. Did you have more jacks since last time I see you, by the way? possible. Yeah. What are you on steroids? What are you juicing on? It's the Jewish genes. No, it's not. We're we're not meant to be that jacked. I I grow horizontally, not vertically. no, I've been working out a decent amount. Like for me, I, I'm definitely at like an anxious point in my life. And it's interesting because it's like everything's going so well. It's almost like my anxiety creates more anxiety because I'm like, why the hell am I so anxious? Like things are going well right now. But it's just like there's, I'm out of routine. There's so much like change and shit happening in my life. It's just uncomfortable. And uh, anyway, the reason I talk about that is because when I get like that, there's like the three core things that I feel like I need to do to like balance myself. And it's like sleep, eating well, and exercise. So I just make sure that I don't miss those when I'm anxious, because if I do, it's a spiral. It's funny how simple that is. It is. But Eat, it, sleep, exercise. It's really simple, but like doing it, not for two weeks straight, but like 20 years straight is really difficult. I mean, I get out of rhythms all the time 
like where I'll go instead of five days a week, six days a week working out, I go two days a week or same thing with, with eating, especially for me, my body doesn't change when I eat. So like the only thing is like my energy levels change. So what it takes is like me eating like an absolute like orangutan one day where I feel horrible the next day. I'm like, I can't eat like this again. Like I literally feel like I was driven over by a truck. When's the last time you relapsed? Two days ago with drinking. I drank for 14 hours straight and I felt horrible the next day and incredibly anxious. Shouldn't have done it. You know, one of the things my buddy Adam always says, which I like, is like, it's not about falling off. It's about getting right back on. Totally. I'm guessing for you, you got right back on exercising, eating, yeah, sleeping. Yeah. This is what I've talked a lot about with my friends is like, what's the tipping point for habits? Because like everyone says they want to work out. Everyone says they want to read. So few people actually read like, what is the emotional tipping point that actually gets someone to fall into routine? And for me, I think it's like once my anxiety levels are at a certain level, that's my tipping point because I just know how much better it makes me when I focus on the trifecta and when I lose sight of the trifecta, my anxiety is horrible. When I don't have anxiety, my tipping point goes away because there's just like less of the emotional burden that's carried from not doing the trifecta. What are you anxious about now? Like today, what are you anxious about? One is just honestly not being in the office. I know there's just a pile of shit that I'm gonna have to do once I get back. And there's just a lot of changes like, you know, living situation, don't know what I'm doing. It's all these small things that are just adding up. And I think I am best when I am uncomfortable, but I feel like I'm controlling something. I a lot of times feel like I need control and I feel like I don't have control in anything right now, which is I think when I get most anxious. And I'm going for the first time on a private jet tomorrow, which most people will be excited about. I'm not because I'm just super OCD. Seeing yesterday the Ethiopia Airlines flight, I'm like, oh shit, like commercial jets have an even lower crash percentage than private jets. Someone's going to have to knock me out for takeoff and landing because I'm not going to be able to deal with it. So how do you deal with this anxiety? Like if you have all these different things going on, so you just, do you just eat, sleep and work out and then it fixes itself? No, no, that's no, what no, I would do. no. I'm like, oh, I'll just do those three. <laughs> the issue is, is I can't expect that because then if I create that expectation, it's like five days later and I'm like looking at my clock being like, yo body, why am I still anxious? I've been doing the trifecta well for the last five days. No, it's other things like when I'm super anxious, I talk to my therapist every like two weeks. I try meditating and it's funny, like people are very either into meditation or not. I like it for the fact of it just like slows things down. The other thing, honestly, I practice is like exposure therapy, which I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but basically it's the idea of, okay, say I'm afraid of going on a plane and it crashing. Like OCD is basically the compulsion is because I'm afraid of going on a plane. If it was a compulsion, I would just not fly, which is the worst thing I can do. So it's like making sure I fly, making sure like before I go on this private jet, I'm actually visualizing us crashing. And it sounds horrible, but it's exposing myself to the worst case scenario. So then I become numb to that feeling. So then there's like nothing for me to be anxious about because the expectation has been created of like, we're going to crash. It's going to burn. We're going to land somewhere in between Austin and New York. And you know, that, I really that's hope you don't die end. tomorrow, dude. Be, at least I got this recorded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing that ties together all these OCDs is the fact of things where there's ambiguity and things where I don't feel like I'm in control and there's not a black or white answer. That's where... I'm most nervous because it's unanswerable, but I'm searching for an answer. And usually when I go through like these anxiety spurts, it's for two or three weeks and they go away and then there's like a lull. And then it's so interesting just how the mind works because I'll be in a lull, like everything is okay. And it's unfortunate, but the way my mind works is like when everything is going well, it's like almost like my brain is starting to think then like something's off. Like how is everything so perfect right now? Like something has to go wrong. I need to at least be cognizant of getting out of that way of thinking. One thing I've noticed in general, we tone things down. Yeah. 
people are like, yeah, life's great, but this thing sucks. Like you can't actually say life is great. Yeah. I think that's just a common thing like in our society that's become a norm. I would say like 90% of the time I'm happy about work, but I think a lot of it is I don't feel it's organized. Yeah. And so for me, my like go-to is just lists. Today, I was just like, okay, what the fuck do I really need to get done today? Yeah. What's the one thing? That's what I was going to ask is like, how are you prioritizing this stuff? Because yeah. I'm sure you could make a list of 25 things every single day. Some days though, I just get, yeah, you just get distracted. So I have like 18 things. It's like in the yeah. far right margin, oh, yeah. like yeah. little shit. It looks like one of those cheat sheets that you make in college for a test. Yeah. Yeah. Second point is like, how do you each person get their own level of control? So for you, there's the trifecta plus yep. therapy, plus I guess facing some of that stuff. Yeah. But it seems like just getting organized. I think one thing is like, makes me wonder when life is going well, how do we just keep making going it weller? Yeah. Everyone kind of innately has that same question slash expectation. It's like the same idea of when people talk about like, we've been in a bull market for 10 years right now, the stock market. People are now like starting to get the itch of like, there's no way we're going to keep going up. Like things have to normalize. And then they start citing all of like these geopolitical risks, which, yeah. you know, maybe there's some weight to what those things are, but I'm searching for it also. But I guess part of me also looks at it as, Almost if life is always great, not is that concerning, but does that mean you're not pushing yourself hard enough outside of your comfort zone? Or is it just a certain mentality? I have a certain pattern matching things going on in my life and I'm trying to understand it. But basically, I'm not satisfied with anything. Yeah. I think there's different personalities. There's people who run companies that are just never happy. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why you run a company because you're still always looking for things to get better. Yeah. And I think where I'm trying to find is where's the balance of just accepting something where it's not creating more pain in my life yeah i kind of like always chasing like even when i get what i want it's not very satisfying for sure i think of my brain as like the best gift and curse in the sense that the way my mind works is i'm so incredibly curious and creative like i'm asking 50 questions about the world the second that i step into a place like the second i step into your office i'm asking questions in my mind i think it's such a productive thing it's how i can be a lifelong learner and whether it be within morning brew or whatever i end up doing after morning brew how I'll become an expert in that. But I think it's also a curse in the sense that because my mind is constantly racing, getting my brain to look through that positive lens constantly, it's all a lens. And I think to your point, it's like, it is all mentality. Our brains don't change how they're working. They're still just like an always on engine mode. But it's like if the lens changes, the perception around the always on engine mode ends up going from something very productive to unproductive. Like what's a goal you've had? Like you got Morning Brew got a million subscribers. Yep. Is that a goal? Yeah. Okay. And then what happened when you got that goal? We hit it. And then it was like, what's next? I'm sure you celebrated. We we celebrated, but like it wasn't zero to a million, right? It was like 900,000 to a million and it was 800 to 900,000. So it was satisfying. But like after honestly a day of celebrating, we had this like million (laughs) reader party. It was like, what's next? And that's all we're thinking about now is what's next. (laughs) When's the last time you were satisfied? Like you were genuinely satisfied. It's a great question. I don't know. There's satisfaction with like a goal that you want but you did have it too. It's a goal that you want and there's hard work to get that goal. Right. Honestly, I feel most satisfied when I get to meet really smart people. Like I spend a lot of my time now like getting coffee with really smart people. And Dude, I know. That's what this one, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're one of them. Yeah. You're one of I'm them. low on the list. You're like, <laughs> no. smart people. No, no, like, seriously, oh, no. Yeah, wait. Smart. Yeah, I no, no, got it. <laughs> no, no. But like, uh, to me, that is when I feel most satisfied in general because it's like- Really? Yeah. Like who's the last person? One example would be, you know, Kettle and Fire. Yeah. So met with one of the founders last night, like super smart guy, like yeah. learned a lot about- Justin? Yeah. yeah. Learned a lot about supply chain and like product from this person. Like to me, it was a 30 minute long masterclass where I got to like 
understand how this dude was thinking, not like the super edited version, like how like whatever stories make out. Like I just got to understand how he was thinking about things, the challenges he's been through, how he had to build a supply chain from scratch with an FDA approved product, like mind blowing to me. And I think to me, like I enjoy that most because it's like people performing at their highest level and what they do. Like it's an opportunity not only to be taught, which is like, I love learning, but it's also I have the opportunity to hopefully add value in a space that he wants to learn more about as well. That's where I think I feel most satisfied and lucky is the fact that for a living, I get to meet people that are in the top 5% of whatever they do. But other than that, yeah, I think that's the really tough thing I've been trying to reconcile recently that also honestly makes me anxious is Austin and I trying to think about what do we ultimately want with our business? There are a few different paths the business can go. One is that this is a lifestyle business we have for the next decade, paying off distributions and just continuing to grow slowly. There's somewhere in the middle where it's like reinvesting a shit ton back into the business, building other product, and then selling in the next three to four years. An investment banker would argue this year is the best time to sell our business because our top line growth from 2018 to 2019, it is going to be hard to ever replicate that. And so you kind of have all these different narratives. And all Austin and I know is we know what we want out of our professional lives, which is like, we want to feel like we're providing a service that helps people. We want to feel like we're working around really smart people. We're building something from scratch. We feel constantly intellectually challenged and we don't have to worry about money again. Those are our criteria. The reason I think that's really important is as we think about like, say the third scenario of selling our business at the end of this year, our whole thing is like, okay, we sell it, then what? Like, then what? We travel for six months, do charity for six months. Okay, now we're 26 and 25. What do we do? It's like we have worked for the last two and a half years full-time to build up an audience that actually trusts us. My guess is we're going to end up wanting to build an audience of some sort after this. Building an audience is really freaking hard. Like, what are we chasing? What do we not have access to or the ability to do right now, given we have an audience, that we shouldn't just be sticking with us for a little while and making sure we're building it to be as good as it can be? Why is the million not satisfying, but meeting with Justin satisfying? Honestly, I think part of it is I enjoy people. I wouldn't say I'm like the most extroverted extrovert. Like I feed off of people, but I also need time where I'm by myself to decompress. But like I feel most alive when I'm connecting with people at different levels about different things. To me, like hitting a million obviously is great. But again, like it wasn't a zero to 100 thing. We've been working at it for months. Whereas like to me, every time I'm connected with someone new, it's all about expectation. I was expecting that we were going to hit a million. You knew you were going to hit I it. knew we were going to hit a million. I wasn't expecting that yesterday I was going to be told by Austin, hey, we're getting dinner with the founder of Kettle and Fire. Or I wasn't, you know, expecting that when I was getting interviewed by, you know, Dell Small Business today, that the person interviewing me was doing like their side hustle and they're actually on the global marketing team for them and knows a shit ton about marketing Dell's products. Like, I think everything in life is about how things play out relative to expectations because everything is just such a mindset. And so it's like, because my expectation is, I don't know who I'm going to be meeting and then I meet someone incredible and I learn something incredible. The gap from expectation to reality is way bigger than like when we hit a million, my expectation was already set That was going to happen. Yeah. So how do we take that more in our day-to-day or week-to-week? Yeah. Because I think the thing with work sometimes is that when you know you're going to do something and it's going to be hit, like that's not as much of a sense of satisfaction because you're expecting it. Right. And so I guess how do you incorporate that more in your day-to-day or your in your work life? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a really careful balance because I think it's also a slippery slope to almost like set your expectations too low because some people will say, set your expectations <laughs> low. So you're, you're always, you know, you're always impressed by what you do. 
I think that's a tough way to go also. In my mind, potentially one thing to do is like think about what are the things that you can do that create the most opportunity for positive and unexpected things to happen. And maybe, I don't know what that is. I was thinking you could just not expect to know what's going to happen at work each week. <laughs> and yeah. then every week should be better than you thought. That would absolutely be true. The only issue with that is I feel like you kind of have to turn your brain off to do that. The one thing I say with satisfaction I was thinking about, and I don't like the word happiness at work. I like fulfillment. Yeah. I take a step back and I'm like, hey, what's the point of this? Right. I just go to like a customer. I'm like, this person, I think they're doing amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. What's the point of what I'm doing? Right. And For it's sure. to go and see if I can actually help that person grow their business. And so when I come back to that, I'm like, revenue's not going the way I want right now. Yeah. But we're doing the things that I want that are fulfilling. Totally. This like the idea of just building a business that will last for a long time that like is incredibly fulfilling. And the whole idea is like never losing your employees. Like don't create like these profit goals or revenue goals on a yearly basis. Obviously over the long term, you want to see that. It just comes down to what everyone's goals are. Maybe some people, what genuinely brings them happiness is the chase for certain revenue numbers or profit numbers. Can't fault anyone for thinking about what motivates them in a certain way. But I think to your point, what motivates us seems to be us helping people. Every time that I hear about Morning Brew providing value to an individual subscriber, like they read it and they say, it's what got them a job. It's a 65-year-old who said they put down the Wall Street Journal for the first time in 30 years. That has kind of been the constant for the last four years is those stories never get old to me. My emotions index very high with these stories and they continue to index at the same level. Like there's not kind of yeah. like this desensitization of these people giving me their stories. Well, I think on one part, as we were talking about, it is satisfying to help the people you want. This sounds a little fucked up, but I am a little desensitized. I love helping the people I want to help. Yep. In addition though, I think I also just selfishly like helping myself. Like how can I help the people I want to help? And I create a tool that I can, point at my dick. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can, how can I create a tool? Well, you know, create a tool that, yeah. that I'm excited to be yeah. using ourselves. Like we've been using all these other tools for so long. Totally. Yeah, it's crazy to me the idea of building a product where you're not the consumer. Clearly there are so many examples of businesses where, yeah. you know, the founder or the CEO was not their user. But at least for me, like, that has been a constant it's why we started the business is like when I went to work at Morgan Stanley before doing this full time, when I was on the train at 545 in the morning to the office, like I was reading Morning Brew. Like to me, there was nothing more satisfying than closing that loop of reading a product that I knew that I liked better than whatever came before it. Since you're not in the office, if I called up people in your office to ask about Morning Brew, ask about you as a leader and describe what you really think about you, what do you think they'd say? I think that they would say that I am definitely the creative in the bunch. Uh, I'm the one who is shooting out idea after idea after idea, and that I at least don't have an ego about throwing out those ideas. Probably eight out of my 10 ideas are going to be complete shit, but it's the two where you know I see people's eyes light up. I think they would say that I really love people. I think they would say that I am not the most organized human being. I think they would say that I need to learn how to schedule things better. The number of times that I get to the office and I'm running to my next meeting or thinking that I had something in five minutes uptown, which would take 45 minutes to get to, to then realize that, oh, actually it's an hour and a half from now, going through this roller coaster of emotions around scheduling, which I will say, this will be a nice uh, little story, is up until two weeks ago, I was spending three to three and a half hours a day on my email, like answering emails and organizing my email. That's over a quarter of my day spent in email, like emails controlling my life. And so I was always the biggest proponent of doing things yourself and not getting like a virtual assistant, chief of staff, whatever. 
I finally got to the point where I was like, just thinking about, and I try to do this with everything now, like, what am I good at? And I just jot down a list. What am I really not good at or do not enjoy doing? Jotting down a list. And making sure anything in that second column, I should not be doing it. It is doing myself and doing everyone on the team a disservice. It's like organization of calendar, managing email. Like, one, those are not things that I can add more value than another person at, and I'm not good at it. So I ended up bringing someone on to organize for me, and it's been the biggest blessing. That person is my mom. I literally was like, I need someone I trust to have access to all my information, who's really organized, who will make sure they don't forget shit. So like my mom is my chief of staff now. Her email is Stacy Whitman, not Stacy Lieberman. So people don't know that my mom is managing my email and she managed it and it's made my life so much easier. How is ramping her up and training her? Not easy. So like I always wondered, how do you get an assistant to be able to handle your email when there's such high touch things, like there's not necessarily a pattern to every email you answer. But basically the process was I went through my entire inbox before she got involved and just started filtering, like making all these labels, whether it was important people, unimportant people, um, (laughs) (laughs) hiring uh, content. And I just started filtering people that I had emailed with in the past. And the way I would filter it is I would say, filter this person to skip the inbox and be starred and then put them in, say, let's say the advertising label. So then what my mom does is every day, instead of going into the inbox, she goes to the starred folder, which basically has 90% of emails I get because 90% of emails I get are not a first email with someone. And she goes through it. And the, the basic rule is, if something is directly addressing me, leave it in there. If something is not directly addressing me, keep a document of, of basically 10 word spark note of each email click the star button so it unstars it, takes it out of the star folder and just puts it under the label that they're organized in. And so instead of ending up with 350 emails a day, that's what I normally had, it's 75. And it's just so much, she's cutting through all the noise. She is providing what Morning Brew provides for business news. She's providing it for like giving my time back in life. Hmm. Yeah. Have you had a reprimander? Not yet. That That's honestly been my one concern is just involving a family member in the business. Yeah. Like I know she's going to do a good job, but like even if she does mess up, it concerns me. I haven't had to yet. I'll let you know if I do. Let's just say I wanted to do a real estate business yep. and I want to be a real estate educator in Austin. Both of us have created different types of email lists. Yeah. What can someone do? Like if you wanted to create a real estate newsletter, like yeah. what are some of the steps that we can do to get our first maybe thousand subscribers? Yeah. I mean, and really concrete, let's try to be as concrete as possible. 100%. So I think honestly, the hardest thing is actually realizing there's a newsletter to be created as in like, there's actually an appetite for it. I think Email has become so sexy in the last few years that people just say they want to create email now. It's the same reason people have said that they want to go into video, which we saw that worked out for certain people. Or now, like, obviously, everyone's flocking to podcasts. And I think the first thing is actually asking yourself the question of, say you want to write a real estate newsletter for Austin, Texas, what is the appetite? Who are you writing for? Are you writing for, like, the real estate broker in Texas? Or are you writing for just, like, the renter who wants to know different properties that they can rent in Austin? You need to know who the audience is. You need to know that email is actually the best delivery mechanism for them because you can't just assume email is because everyone has email. Different audiences consume content in different ways. And then once you know that there is an appetite, then this is to me why it was the best thing to be my own consumer is I just wrote for myself. So if you're not writing for yourself, you should surround yourself with people that you are writing for so you know you're actually giving them something that's going to want them to come back and they'll actually give a shit about you. How do you know if you're writing something that people want or not? 
it's a great question. For me, the reason I think it was so intuitive is because I was my consumer. So it was like I had been reading the Wall Street Journal for 12 years straight. And then I was- Did you get it at your bar mitzvah? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Literally when I was 13. You got a subscription? Yeah, yeah. I got like checks from my grandparents' friends and then I get a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. You got Israeli bond and a subscription. Okay, so- I was helping kids prep for job interviews and I would ask them, how do you keep up with the business world? And every student would say, I read the Wall Street Journal and they would go on and on. But like the words coming out of their mouth, it literally felt like their soul was being pulled out of their body while they were saying this. To me, this is so interesting that no one externally talks about how shitty the Wall Street Journal is. I had a subscription to it. I like the Wall Street Journal. So I I enjoy it, but I think it just satisfies a different need. It's not like your roundup. It's like if you want analysis and things that you care deeply about, Wall Street Journal is always going to be there. But so these kids were all saying like, I don't love the Wall Street Journal. It's dense and my parents told me to do it. And to me, like this mismatch of these people want to have long careers in business, yet they don't have content that gets them excited about business. Like I thought there was opportunity there. And then again, I at the time I didn't think about it this way, but if you just think about how many media brands there are, and how few have actually built an audience that gives a shit about them. To me, that's the, where there was real opportunity. So say you use the example for real estate. I think real estate's really compelling. It's actually a sub-brand within business we think about all the time. Because if you were asked people who care about real estate, what they read on a regular basis as it relates to local or national real estate, it's all these like multi-decade-old trade publications that are written by people that are in their 50s for people in their 50s, not for people that are going to run businesses in the next five to 10 years. Okay, so. When you put yours out, yep. how did you get your first hundred stars? How did you know that people actually wanted so, that news? There was no website at the time. It was a PDF that I attached to an email. I added the first 45 people, which were my family members and the kids that I was helping prep for interviews. And then what ended up happening was, again, there was no website. I started getting texts from people or emails from people saying, hey, I heard about your daily business roundup from so-and-so who subscribed to your listserv. Can you add me to your listserv? And so basically for four months straight, I was adding people by email to my Michigan listserv, and it grew to over a thousand people, it was impossible for them to sign up for the product. I honestly, I think partly got lucky in what I was creating. I didn't realize just how much pent up demand there was for something better. But then the fact that I kept getting hit up by people that I, some I knew, some I didn't know saying, sign me up for this. And the product looked like such shit. I wish, I wish like the audience could see what it looked like because it, it was horrible. That was enough appetite in itself for me. So if I created something, I guess you just put, you kept putting it out there. That's yeah. one thing is that you were consistent and then you got strong feedback. Well, that's the thing. The great thing about email, I think, is just the fact that I was putting it out every day, even when I had 200 people on it, because it was like those 200 people were so engaged. I was getting 20 emails a day in response saying, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. So I think the fact that the feedback loop was so quick, I was the consumer of it. And also like all the readers in the beginning were Michigan students. So it was everyone like around me in the business school. I just knew that if people like something, they're going to become your best evangelist and salesperson. I knew people clearly had to like this if other people were finding out. To me, there was so much opportunity because I just knew how bad the product was, but like clearly was just good enough where people were liking it. I wasn't a good writer and I was just putting it together by myself. How long did you do it by yourself for? How uh, long did you write the- Three day? months. Every day. Call it four days a week. Just not weekends. Yeah, yeah. So for someone else out there who has a newsletter and they yep. started getting responses, they basically sign up family, friends, yep. LinkedIn contacts, favorites on phone, Facebook, things like that. Did you tell them in your newsletter, like, hey, forward this to friends? No, I didn't. Oh, Literally wow. said nothing. They just, it was so good they wanted to. Yeah, that was the thing. There was nothing about forwarding. Again, it wasn't in the body of the email. It was literally this attached PDF. Didn't say anything else. And then did you realize right away it was a business? Or you're like, okay, this is going to be something? I realized that it was 
something. And I didn't even think of it from a business lens. I was just like, this is something that at least can grow an audience. And so that's when I brought on Austin Reef, my co-founder over winter break of senior year of college. Because I was just like, at this point, we need to make it a little bit more legitimate. It needs to live in the email. There needs to be some design. At first, it wasn't called Morning Brew. It was called Market Corner. So we launched it in March of 2015, launched it using MailChimp, had a Michigan senior who was a double major in art and the business school, create the original logo, which we've changed since. She made the original template. And we started sending it out March of 2015. From a writing standpoint, we just brought on a few college writers who just wanted to get involved in creating better business content. Like Unpaid just wanted to do it. Why'd you guys change the name? Market corner felt limiting. Cornering the market is like a financial markets term. It just means like if you're really bullish on a trade, you buy everything. And we didn't want it to be just a financial newsletter. We wanted it to be a business newsletter. So that was part of it. So if someone else out there, it sounds like the first thousand, yep. a lot of it was just... It was a grind. It was just pounding the pavement. Like to get the first thousand, it was, I would say the first, call it 300, were just what I was describing of like the people hitting me up saying, had me to your listserv. Then we launched in March of 2015. It was just doing every guerrilla tactic imaginable. So we would print out these like, almost like index card shaped pieces of paper that would have like business riddles on them. It would have like interview questions and business riddles. If you wanted the answer, you had to sign up for Morning Brew. We also literally, we just made like a two by two square describing what Morning Brew was. And every day Austin and I would go and put all these flyers down in the, like they call it the winter garden, just the main area of the business school in Michigan. Every day by 3 p.m., like the janitors have picked them up. We go the next day and we literally just kept doing that every single day as if it was just like a subway car that people were constantly sitting in. And at some point we actually got hit up by the school telling us that we had to stop and we were loitering and we were horrible people. So we did stop. The way I always think about you know, marketing of our product is we know who our audience is. How do we find the hubs that provide us the most efficient vehicle to get in front of all those spokes? Mm. And so as I thought about it, it's like, who's our reader? It's like the business forward college student, the one who wants to go into consulting or tech or finance. So I thought about what are the best places to find these people, get into the classes of business school professors, get into business fraternities or get into business clubs and be able to speak to them. So Austin and I literally spoke to 50 plus classes in clubs within a two month period where we just go up in front of the room, explain what Morning Brew was, explain why we were solving a problem, basically say how it is a no brainer since it's free for you to sign up. You could always unsubscribe. We'd pass around a sheet of paper, have people write down their email address, and then we'd go home and type one in, each one in individually. Reason we had them do it on paper is we just found when we set in a class, go to morningbrew.com on your laptop. Way fewer people did it just because, like, obviously the physical gap of signing up was so much lower when you have to just write something on a piece of paper. What were some of the ones that did not work in those early times? We started doing cross promotions early on with other email newsletters. And that was the first sign to us of just like how important just quality of audience is because there are all these different newsletters that we were somehow, we were at 2000 readers and we were like, let's try to leapfrog up and work with a newsletter that has 10,000 readers, 15,000 readers, somehow get them to agree to do a cross promo. And we do a cross promo and we would get them more subscribers because like clearly their open rate or their audience just was not as engaged. So that was one thing very early we realized is like we started trying to do all these partnerships. One thing I would say is I'm all about like partnerships, but so few partnerships actually work out, actually end up being worth your time. Partnerships aren't that scalable and they take a lot of time to set up. 
So you have to get really good at just being judicious about who are the people that actually you can provide some sort of like equal value to because we mess that up a lot in the beginning. Like for example, we tried to get the career services like department at Michigan to spread Morning Brew around everywhere. Worst idea humanly possible because to get a school to start promoting something is as difficult as like telling a financial services firm you want to write their business newsletter. And that would end up taking 15 years because compliance is the fastest growing division in a bank. And so like the number of hoops you have to jump through is crazy. The other thing is one of our early growth strategies was our campus ambassador program, which ended up doing really well for us. But the first year we did it, the approach we took was the quality approach, as in we didn't try to like open the floodgates and let 50 to 100 college students be our ambassadors. We hand-selected ambassadors from like a pool of 100 resumes did like two or three rounds of interviews, got it down to like 12, and we selected 12 ambassadors. That was the worst thing we could have ever done. These 12 that we picked, we thought, like I was describing the hub and spoke model before, we thought these people were hubs in their grades, like business club presidents, you know, business fraternity presidents. But it's like the thing that made them perfect also made them the worst possible people to be our ambassadors because these were the people that were so incredibly motivated. They involved themselves in so many things academically and extracurricularly. And college students generally, don't know how not to spread themselves too thin even if they're really smart. So these kids just had so many different commitments. They didn't know how to commit themselves to the right number of things. So they were all incredibly impressive, but didn't have time for us. And then what did you incentivize? And then how'd you fix the problem? Because I think that program is still about 30, 40% of your growth. No, it's not that much anymore. What percent is that? So our referral program is 25% of our list. The college ambassador program now is a way smaller piece once we start doing paid acquisition, but referrals are still a huge component. It's not rocket science. It's at three referrals, you get access to Morning Brew Sunday edition light roast. Five referrals, you get our stickers. 10 referrals, you get an invite to our Facebook group, which is like really quality discussion with other business people. 15, you get a phone wallet. Now a double pocket. We used to do single pocket. 25 uh, Morning Brew t-shirt, 50 Morning Brew crew neck, 75 Morning Brew mug. And how much have you spent on your referral program? It's in the tens of thousands, but not six figures. I mean, if you just look at the, the acquisition cost for every referral, it's negligible. Can maybe in your current size, you're over a million now. Maybe can you break out, we jumped ahead a little bit too fast, but I am curious, like break out where that million came from yeah. for other people out there as they, you know, and think in the beginning, it sounds like the beginning tactic is most importantly, make something people want. Yep. You know, people are like, how do I do marketing? Yeah. It's like, make something people want. Exactly. I don't know how I'd be able to sell or market something that I didn't truly believe in. Well, I think the second thing besides the hub and spoke model that you said, or like hub and release or yeah, yeah. land and expand, I think that what you did, which is interesting, is you targeted your audience really well. I think on Sumo, we're working towards that. And I think a lot of businesses don't do that. So the marketing is a lot harder. Yeah. Where you're at now with a million, maybe break out where that came from. Yeah. So 250,000 of it was the referral program. Another 15% of it was literally direct traffic to website. So we have horrible SEO. So it's all just word of mouth. Like, hey, go check out Morning People Brew. typing in morningbrew.com. Okay. Then the other 60% was paid acquisition of some sort. 60%? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, I was not expecting that. Huh? No, so we do- Because you guys only started that like two years ago? Or so we started doing paid acquisition called March of 2018. Yeah. But now like it ramped up pretty quickly just because we saw the acquisition costs we were getting on Facebook and Instagram. We measure acquisition based on the cost of a high quality subscriber. The way we define that is basically someone who opens- five out of their first 10 newsletters. So that's how our team evaluates, like what is the cost of that person? Do you say they're active at that five or 10 opens? So we say that they're active after the 10 opens if they've opened at least five. 
but we also have churning practices where if you don't open four weeks straight, you get a re-engagement email where it says, if you don't push this button, basically, we're going to churn you from the list. Okay. Yeah. So paid acquisition has been a really big thing. Because that means you spent over a million bucks so far. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. A lot of points right there. Yeah. Is that why the points guy's taking you on his jet? <laughs> uh, a lot A lot of points, yeah. Which Austin and I didn't really know anything about points, but then we quickly had to learn about points once we accumulated a lot of points. But no, that was, that was a, cool a whole one. other discussion. So if I was starting out and I want to do some ad stuff, because it sounds like 60% ads, 25% referrals, and then word mouth, and you could also bucket like uh, earned media and non-paid cross promos in there. Are you still doing giveaways and stuff like that? Well, so the giveaways, I actually bucket into our referral program. The giveaways are ridiculous. Like we've talked about sweepstakes before. We don't do sweepstakes anymore because yeah. the number of new subscribers we generate from our own giveaways is more than you would get from a sweepstake. And the quality is significantly better. It's like we did a two-day MacBook giveaway, gave two MacBooks away a day, one to someone who referred someone and then the other to the person that they referred on these MacBook giveaway days will grow by mid five figures in terms of number of new subscribers and just the quality of those people relative to a sweepstakes where you're partnering with four other companies. Well, let's stick on that for just a second. How do you get them activated? Because a lot of times it's people saying, fuck you at okdork.com or Gmail, whatever. Right. When they sign up, how do you activate them? to? So you only get referral credit when someone double opts in. Okay. So we've had people try to game the system before where they literally create all these burner emails and they double opt into all of them. But like we see that behavior and we just shut them down. But the amount of work it takes someone to do that, it's now very low. Like double opt-in solved a lot of problems. Interesting. It also definitely, again, brought down some of our conversion rate for people who they subscribe through a referral. And for whatever reason, the double opt-in email either went to their spam or they forgot about it and then didn't opt-in. That's a risk we're paying. That's some of the stuff we're building. So what you guys have in referrals yeah. and the giveaway stuff, we're building into Sumo.com yeah. now yeah. so everybody can do it. No, it's awesome. Everything we're talking about just comes down to quality of product and audience. Because again, this would not work if it wasn't a good product where people didn't like it. I guess, how did you recognize to do ads? You know, how'd you guys recognize that? To actually start doing paid acquisition. Yeah, just try it out. And we knew that the margin on an email business is so incredibly high. Once we started monetizing, it was a very simple model. It was, okay, we're going to keep putting out a great product every day. We're going to get some more people finding out. And then we just have to get really good at storytelling this brand to explain to you know Microsoft or to discover why you should pay to get in front of this audience. The way that we charge these advertisers is based on opens of the newsletter. So it just incentivizes us to get quality people. And so then we were just like, how do we amplify getting quality subscribers? Did well, we mind? use the margin from our ad dollars we're getting to just pump it back in, gets more ad dollars and just gets the flywheel going. And so if I'm starting out today and I have my real estate thing in Austin and yeah. people are reading it and I have you know brokers paying me to, to yeah. do it, how do I get started in ads? And honestly, this is such a relevant question because we just launched a new newsletter. So we're verticalizing the business and we launched our emerging technology newsletter this week. So it's like literally back to day one of thinking about how do we scale a completely new vertical? Obviously, we have this million person audience that allows us to grow it, but we're still thinking about a lot of these things. Okay, making the assumption that you know exactly what the real estate enthusiast in Austin wants, you create a great product for them. They're spreading it through word of mouth. Then I think you have to just ask yourself, who is the person? that really, really, really wants to get in front of who you know your reader is, find the person whose price inelasticity is so high because they need to get in front of that person. Well, I was curious more your Facebook ad buying specification. Oh, you're saying for the ad buying. Okay. Yeah. So for us, again, like we started very general with it where the audience was called 18 to 45 and it was someone who at all marked some interest in business. 
We haven't started doing paid acquisition for the Emerging Tech Newsletter, which is a new one we launched. I think that'll be really interesting. We're trying to figure out if it's going to be more expensive or less expensive to acquire a subscriber. I don't know the answer because I think my initial reaction is, oh, it's going to be more expensive because it's just a smaller pie. But then the other part of me is like, it actually could be less expensive because you could just make your ad creative, like just really eye-catching, whether it be around Elon stuff or stuff like that. But then I think the question becomes, what is the quality going to be of that subscriber? Because this is just more niche. Maybe what are some of the first things I should do for ad buying if I want to expand my audience base? So the first one we did was just literally United States, 18 to 40 something, and had showed some interest in business. That was literally it. In the beginning, it actually, what ended up happening was it started as male and female. And we ended up finding that female subscribers were significantly more expensive than male subscribers, like 3X. So there was a period of time we were only acquiring male subscribers because it was so much cheaper. But our whole thing is like, we didn't want to have a completely skewed audience. And so now, you know, our audience is 55%, 45% male, female. But that was a tweak we had to make early on because it was so much more expensive. Basically, we made our funnel as large as humanly possible in the beginning. And the creative that worked for us, there were two creatives. One was a text message conversation where it was literally like a friend texting a friend, like a screenshot of an iPhone screen saying like, yo, how did you learn that insane stuff about business you were telling me mm-hmm. about the other way? That's cool. And the friend would respond back. That creative did incredibly well for about four months. And then it kind of just died out. Then we also had a few creatives where it was literally just like, honestly, like a good looking person reading something on their phone and there was some headline about Morning Brew under it. Generally, we found like things that feel closest to a human behavior or to a human Natural. have worked well. Text message conversation and good looking people. Well, it's also something that you'd probably see on Facebook. I'd see my friend doing something. I'd see a text. Exactly. Thing, I'd see something yeah, that- It feels the most native inherently. It's like not something that sticks out like a sore thumb. I like that. So one thing you were going on, and I think this is a good way for people who have smaller businesses or starting out with newsletters and they want to make money, some of the last two things. Number one, so what was the first money you guys actually made? As in like the dollar amount or what was it? Both. So it was an ad deal with the University of Virginia and they paid us like 700 bucks to advertise in the newsletter one day. And did you approach them or they asked you? We approached them. So it actually happened. And the way we've gotten ad deals, there have been so many different ways, inbound, outbound, like absurd outreach. This one was on LinkedIn. I was targeted by a sponsored LinkedIn message from someone in the admissions department at the University of Virginia for one of their master's program. So I literally just hit up that person on LinkedIn and said, hey, I saw you're doing this. I'm assuming LinkedIn CPAs are pretty high. This is what Morning Brew's up to. Would love to work with you guys. And then what was, how'd the first response go? It was really good. Yeah. And for schools, generally, we've become too expensive for a lot of schools. That said, like Michigan recently ran with us. Walsh College recently ran with us. They both saw a ton of success. I mean, their metric for success is just how many qualified leads do they get for people applying to programs? Obviously, the cost they're willing to pay for a qualified lead is extremely high given the cost of tuition. Yeah, And so it went really well for University of Virginia. They worked with us for the next like three quarters. At some point, we did become too expensive for them. Where like their whole budget for like the masters of called accounting program, they would be spending it on just us and that would be their entire budget. Because Walsh College, by the way, number one college, this podcast sponsored by Walsh College. (laughs) If you're looking to get a degree in knitting, that was so elitist to me. So I think one thing I want to just highlight from you about how you made money, 
you looked at someone spending money already and yep. you could solve their problem better than what they're currently doing. Totally. So other ways of doing that is look at Facebook ads, yep. sponsored Instagram posts, LinkedIn posts, Google Other ads, email newsletters. Other email newsletters for sponsors. If you're trying to do a conference, look who's sponsoring other conferences. Yep. And I thought that's smart that you're looking for people already spending money and you know you can help them. At the end of the day, it's like, if you think about us, we're a 13 person media startup. People always wonder like, how did you get these massive deals? Morgan Stanley, Access Investing, Microsoft, Dropbox, like these huge companies. And it's, I think we are just very efficient about getting in touch with people who have already qualified themselves, either qualified themselves because they're huge fans of Morning Brew or qualified themselves because we know they're spending on email newsletters. It's like, we just know every email newsletter, what partners they're working with. We also just know like of our readers, who are the marketers in our audience? We make sure to like reach out to people that we think are either senior decision makers or marketers at companies to see if they'd like to work together. Inbound is huge for us. Like if I look by dollars spent historically on Morning Brew, out of our top five, four of them were inbound. So as people have grown, how have you guys adjusted your business strategy? Honestly, what we've found is just at some point we are going to be too expensive. Marketers don't actually want to spend, you know, $50,000 in one day on one channel. And we're at the point now where we are becoming too expensive for people. Just to answer the first question of like how we charge, we charge based on unique opens of the newsletter. So our whole pitch is like, it's just more efficiently spending your money where you know every dollar is going towards someone who could be reading your ad versus charging a flat fee or a CPM. You know, at this point when people are spending $25,000 plus a day to advertise in our main newsletter spot and $15,000 plus a day in our like lower spot, especially for marketers that want to just test and learn, even huge companies and their test and learn budget is like $10,000. What we've started to have to do is we split our list now and we sell segmented parts of our list to allow people to test the list. The one downside of that is you just need a bigger sales team as you start doing that because you've doubled your inventory. So it's just being really judicious about not having your first advertisement in the newsletter be like the bottleneck to not allow someone in because it's simply too expensive, but also having the balance of not segmenting every single day's list because we literally have to double our sales team. And how big is the sales team now? Three people. Is it outbound or inbound? I would say 75% of what they're doing is outbound. We get a ton of inbound interest, but most of it is honestly pretty trashy in the sense of like, we'll get 15 to 20 inbound emails a day. Two to three of them are actually, I think, interesting people to work with. Do you send them to your competitors, those trashy people? It's a great idea. (laughs) Thanks for the tip. One thing I was trying to think about is that you guys started a new vertical emerging trends thing. How did you think about it strategically? I mean, there's probably how many people business-wise in America that that should be reading more than a million? million? You could argue like, why not just go crazy deeper on that versus splitting yourself thinner? Totally. So I'm just curious about your guys' thought process, yeah. what you guys went through deciding I that. I think there's a few things. I think one was the way we're thinking about the business is at some point, our core newsletter, irrespective of how large it gets, is going to tap out at certain revenue. Like we're going to end up having to go from charging on unique opens of the newsletter to a fixed fee because if you charge based on unique opens, we'll get to a point where someone has to pay $75,000 a day. Someone simply won't be able to do that. And so- even if, say, our total audience could get to 7 million, we know we are not going to 7x our revenue from 1 million. That's not going to happen. So one is that we know there's a ceiling. The other is, you know, 2018 is the year of just like diversifying our content for readers, like think about audience development, but also diversifying under the advertising bucket. Like I think everyone believes that not only do people think advertising is dead, but also people believe that if you are just an ad-based business, you are not diversified at all. And I think there's so many different types of advertising that we're trying to get interest from a different type of advertiser. Like if you look at Morning Brew's advertisers, 80% of them are performance marketers. 
A performance marketer is different from a brand marketer, is different from an affiliate marketer. And I think the way that they would react with their marketing budget in recessionary times is very different. And so one of the reasons we launched, say, let's use emerging tech and in general, verticalizing the business is A, it leans on the one thing that we are good at. There's only one thing we are good at as a business. It is creating great emails, scaling great emails, and monetizing them. We really don't know anything else. And our whole thing is if we want to continue to be a profitable business that doesn't have to raise a lot of money, we need to lean on what we're good at. That's why we're staying with email. The other is that we take up five minutes of real estate in someone's morning routine. We go a mile wide and an inch deep and everyone asks us, why can't you go deeper on the topics we care most about? Someone wants to learn more about Tesla in an Elon story we cover, they click out and they're on CNBC or something else. Their whole thing is, why can't we read about it in the brew? And the other is the type of marketer we're talking to for these industry newsletters is very different. We're not charging on a CPM, we're not charging a CPV. It is just a flat fee. It is not something that you're backing to a CPA and you're comparing to Facebook. This is changing the brand perception of the perfect audience within the millennial business demographic within that vertical, and you're paying up for it. So I think to get those people in the conversation is very productive as well. How much have you diversified attention? Because nowadays the money isn't attention. It, you know, back in 2000, it was like eyeballs, eyeballs, eyeballs. And now it seems like it is actually influential and in then maybe to move revenue around. How much have you diversified in terms of growing Instagram or YouTube or your blog or SEO? Or- so not a ton. I think one of the things that we're thinking a lot about is there are certain other channels where we think it makes a lot of sense to develop audience. Instagram, I think, makes a ton of sense. SEO, we're still trying to decide. Reason that we're kind of hooked up on SEO is to be competitive in business and business news, we're worried is going to be really difficult. So it's something we think about a lot. Attention is really important, but I think one step further than attention is trust. And that's the whole thing is like, how can we get quality attention? People who actually trust us. So what I never want to feel like is that we're building out Instagram for Morning Brew because we think that advertisers need to be sold Instagram in addition to our core newsletter to agree to an ad deal. I want us going into Instagram because we believe like, our reader is spending 12 o'clock to one o'clock on Instagram. We can give them business lifestyle content they'll actually like and not hate. That's why I want to go into it. So the short answer is we're going to keep building out these verticals. My goal is not for everyone to be subscribed to every single newsletter. It's not possible. But my goal is maybe you're subscribed to the core newsletter and you know the real estate newsletter because you're a real estate professional who also needs to be abreast to what's going on generally. We're definitely going to put emphasis on growing out Instagram because I think it makes a ton of sense for how our audience, our reader is consuming content throughout their day. What have you guys said no to? Because a five-minute daily podcast, you're literally reading off your newsletter kind of makes a lot of sense. So I think one thing to that is our concern is about just cannibalizing the core newsletter. If you have a five-minute daily read, you don't need to open the newsletter. So it kind of cannibalizes the ad business away, or we would just have to learn how to sell ads and that would just take time and energy and resource. So someone out there should just read your newsletter and call it the daily coffee. There's someone who literally does that every day on Instagram. He does like the highlights of the brew on Instagram live every day. The other worry I have about podcasts is I think there's a lot of value in podcasts, but I think it comes down to the same thing we were talking about before, which is why does it make sense for the audience? Why is this the best channel of delivery to deliver that story to the audience? I think a lot of people are going into podcasts just because they hear other people are. So for us, I think one, we just need to make sure we justify that. The second is to make sure like the dollars support the business and are worth diverting attention at all. And I think one of the concerns we have is as we just think about scaling the business, if you look at potentially what this podcast would bring in relative to the core product, it's not even going to move the needle. I also worry about depth of advertisers in podcasts. 
I worry that there's a, a number of heavily venture-backed businesses that pump a ton of money into podcasts, but there isn't all that much depth in terms of advertising. There's a huge long tail of companies doing it. And I just worry that a few companies decide to change strategy, whether it be ZipRecruiter or Squarespace or Blue Apron, that it makes it a lot harder. At the end of the day, there's only a few big scale podcasters and podcast businesses that have actually been incredibly profitable. And then what other stuff you said no to? Anything monetization? Yeah, or, one, or, one is we used to do advertorials, which was just like such a grab for money and for audience growth. For example, Hint Water was doing this for a while. Have a third-party content company write a great profile on Hint's founder, the story, and then literally just post it, and they pump millions of dollars into boosting that post, getting traffic through it, and then the conversion rates they were seeing on those posts were incredible. So for them, the acquisition costs were so low. We ended up doing that a few times. But at the end of the day, like as we thought back to it, one, we weren't seeing great subscriber growth to Morning Brew, even though the content lived on our site, the conversion rate was horrible. And the other thing is just like it added no value to the reader. Like when we just stepped back and said, okay, how is this making our reader's life any better? It wasn't. It was just a complete grab for someone paying a flat fee for an advertorial and someone fueling a lot of traffic to our website that never actually ended up being converted. So we did a few of those and then we're just like, this makes no sense. Interesting. I like that you guys said no to stuff. I think that's really hard in business. It's easy to say yes to everything and like figure out what you actually stand for. The other thing I would say is we're asked about video all the time. We're asked to create like a morning brew video show constantly. It's not something that I would say we will never do. I just think video is really difficult. I think video is really difficult just from a human behavior perspective. Like when I think about people in our demographic, what sort of video they're watching, I think it's very barbelled. I think you have the like incredibly high production value video, like HBO Go, Netflix, et cetera. Then you have like the really shitty viral videos, like hands and pan stuff and like cute cats. But the issue is, is like on the hands and pan stuff and cute cat side, you never remember the brand. You just remember the content of it. Brand recognition is so incredibly low. On the high production value side, we are not about to go create Game of Thrones anytime soon. And what I try to think about is, okay, if Morning Brew is to create video, we'd want to be somewhere in the middle. I am always very attracted to the idea of creating habit for any product we create. How could we create a habit out of video? And so I try to like to at least just be, you know, smart about the decision. I try to think who else has created video that sits somewhere in the middle in terms of production value and has become habit for people that are millennials or like in their 20s. And there aren't that many examples of it. Like there's Barstool, but I think Barstool's absolutely crushed it. But outside of that, there aren't a whole lot of examples. And so to me, I worry about like, one, you can do video at a pretty low cost. To me, I have no proof of concept that people will actually tune into a video every single day for X number of minutes. Also, when I look at video, honestly, the best video is created by personal brands like that have actually been habits, whether it be Gary Vee or whether it be Noah Kagan or whether it be whoever it is, it's all personal branding. So I think that plays into another thing about as we verticalize this business, how we think about personal brands. That's actually where I see more opportunity for potentially doing things in podcast or video. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one thing I was curious as you were talking about Barstool and so forth, it's like, who are you jealous of? Like whose business are you envious of? I don't think I would take anyone's business over ours right now. But if you were to tell me, okay, you have to stop doing Morning Brew right now, where would you go? I think what Axios is building is incredible. I think the athletic is really interesting. To me, it's a it has to be just like an absolute roller coaster. They're literally taking down like all of local sports coverage around the country and just bringing all this talent in-house. 
because their business model is subscription, they are now incentivized in a really good way, which is just to create the best content humanly possible. It's no longer about page views, which I think is amazing. But with Axios, I think it's, you know, they have the playbook from Politico. They're literally just doing it over of creating great verticalized newsletters, the best in class talent. And then my guess is at some point they're going to release a B2B product that's some sort of deep analysis subscription product for businesses that cost tens of thousands of dollars a year. And it's going to be a really solid business. How many days have you guys been sending a daily newsletter? Austin and I have been full-time for, call it, two and a half years, but we've been sending out the daily newsletter every single day since March of 2015. So it's like four years. It's literally it's four, four years. years. Yeah. yeah it's so what is that, 700, 1400 days Yeah, almost? 1400 straight days. Because I think one thing I have to remind myself, and I think people out there, people who are in day jobs, people who are inside hustles, people who are in their companies, whether they want to do new newsletter or any type of business, and I think what we can end with this, which is... Just do it every day for 1,400 days, yeah. and then you can have a sizable company. Totally. I think that's the biggest thing is people expect, it's again, it all comes back to expectation. That's why you have to love so much what you're doing and feel so passionate about the value you're providing. Because if you're expecting something to happen overnight or even over a year, you're setting your expectations the wrong way. We've literally been nonstop at this for the last four years. I've not gone a day in the last four years that I haven't thought about this. That's the mentality you have to have with any business, I think. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, go check out Alex at morningbrew.com. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's play ping pong together. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by sending me an email at podcast at okdork.com. Also, remember to go check out the Sumo Ride. If you haven't done it yet, sumoride.com. Come party, ride bikes, and contribute to a fun cause. Final, special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com, as always, for making these podcasts. I don't think all of y'all realize how much work Jason puts in and the team puts into making these episodes. It's not just we have a chat and it goes. It's about 10 hours to edit these episodes. So go give Jason some love at podcasttech.com. And thank you for everything you do, Jason and David Kelly at The Door Team. Plus you, Dean. I see you, Dean Young, kicking some ass now, uh, doing a lot of our social media stuff. Thank you so much, man. What's your favorite shoe to wear.